This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Change, Redefining Success, the podcast designed to inspire you and give you actionable information to enhance, up-level, reimagine, and reinvent your life and your livelihood. No matter where you started, where you are now, or where you've been, you too can lead an authentic, first-class life. Each week, new stories of turning points and transformation will help you define what success means to you so you can live your best life on your terms. Now here's your host, first-class life mentor and certified Profiting From Your Passions coach, Kate Fessler. Welcome to Change, Redefining Success. I'm your host, Kate Fessler, and today I have another encore guest, nutrition and health expert, Beth Gillespie. Beth is a certified nutrition consultant and member of the National Association of Nutrition Professionals. She's known as an expert in the field of nutrition, serving both healthcare practitioners and their patients. In addition to working with women and men on an individual basis, Beth offers group programs that empower people to make lifestyle changes, including her highly successful cleanse programs. Beth combines the best of science, advancements in technology, and a holistic approach to help her clients figure out their unique nutritional needs and get the results they want more quickly. Beth received her environmental medicine certification in 2015 and is now teaching her clients how to reduce exposure to environmental toxins that have a significant impact on energy levels, brain health, hormone balance, and overall vitality. She also completed Dr. Dale Bradison's practitioner training in late 2016 on how to reverse mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease by addressing the underlying causes. Beth is inspired by her own quest for optimal health and shares her passion with anyone that is ready to make a change for a more energized life. Her personal interests include hiking, reading, yoga, cooking, spiritual growth, live music, and vacations in tropical places. Welcome, Beth. Thank you, Kate. I'm so excited to be here today. Thanks for coming back to talk with me today about optimizing brain health, a subject I know is in the back of everyone's minds as we, maybe our parents or others in our families, get older. Before we get started on that, for those who haven't had the opportunity to listen to our previous conversation, could you please give a brief overview of your background and how you landed on nutrition and health as a career path? Well, Kate, I, um, gosh, I came from the telecommunications industry and was ready for a real big change. I had always been interested in health and nutrition. Uh, so I went back to school um, in my early 30s to get my nutrition um, uh, education. And then um, I specifically became interested in brain health when I witnessed um, my grandmother go through Alzheimer's. And this was when I was just starting nutrition school. And um, I didn't really have that much background yet um, and was really, really trying to understand how I could better help her. But unfortunately, by the time we really understood that she had you know, Alzheimer's, it was very, very progressed. And there wasn't a whole lot we could do at that time. Um, and it was, uh, you know, she was already in her 80s. So um, it just be, then what happened was um, on my uh, the other side of the family, my mom's side of the family, one of my uncles um, was diagnosed uh, in his late 60s, which is pretty 
pretty darn early with Alzheimer's disease. And uh, this just, you know, um, gosh, this really got me going. I said, okay, this has to be, I have Alzheimer's disease on both sides of my family and I'm at high risk for Alzheimer's disease. This, this is what I need to focus on. This is what I need to do. And I need to help people prevent mild cognitive decline, Alzheimer's disease, and I need to prevent it in myself. So it's become a passion of mine. Wow. Well, many of, ex uh, many, many of us accept that as we get older, we'll have what we endearingly call, quote, senior moments, or we'll suffer from CRS, which I can't say what it really means, but, you know, can't remember something. <laughs> uh, what other symptoms of brain decline should we be looking out for? Um, I think it's really important to look at um, your ability to focus um, and uh, a lot of people complain of their brain feeling foggy. That's definitely a symptom. Um, also starting to have a lot more problems with recall. I'm sure that we've all experienced when we can't remember the name of a restaurant or a movie that we saw or, you know, a favorite song, you know, it's like, oh, I know it, I know it, but it's just not coming out. It's like at the tip of my tongue. Well, that's going to happen every once in a while, Kate. But when it starts happening more and more frequently, that's definitely a sign of brain decline. Um, and then, you know, just frequently forgetting names and, and sometimes even faces. You know, you go, Whoa, wait, wait, I, I, I know that face, but I can't remember where I know that person from. So that would definitely be um, another symptom. Um, or forgetting what you're saying mid-sentence more often. Um, or walking into into a room and you can't remember why you walked into the room. Um, uh -oh. Also, yeah, I know that. <laughs> well, and that can be because we're very, very distracted. But if it starts happening more, like you notice, oh gosh, you know, it's, this is happening a lot more than it used to. Um, or frequently misplacing your personal items, like keys, for example, like you can never remember where your keys are, or where your glasses are. Um, that's definitely something to look out for too. Or you're simply just having more difficulty learning new things. You know, you're just like, gosh, you know, everything seems like harder. Um, or, you, you know, you, you have a hard time calculating. Maybe you used to easily calculate a tip at a restaurant. Now you have to think about it more. Um, and maybe you have to write lists a lot more often than you used to because you can't seem to remember things, you know, if you don't have a list. So those are just, a, you know, a, a few things um, to look out for. Hmm. What are the four major contributors to brain decline? Well, there are, gosh, there are so many contributors to brain decline, but four major um, contributors would definitely be um, hormone, you know, hormone, like low hormones or hormone imbalance, um, insulin resistance, which they now know happens in the brain. Um, another one, is just um, toxicity. You know, unfortunately, toxins like mercury um, can get into our brain, so that's another big one. And then, um, like gut gut infections, whether they're viral or um, bacterial, um, or even um, oral infections, um, can affect our brain health. And I'm happy to you know expand on those as well. Um, and another one too that we have to look at, uh, of course, is is, is genetics. 
Um, of course, genetics um, will tell us if we're at increased risk. It doesn't mean that we'll get Alzheimer's. You know, if you know our, you know, if we have certain types of you know genetic SNPs, it doesn't mean that we'll get mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's. But it definitely um, does increase our risk and gives us, you know, a, I guess, a motivation to take a more preventative approach to getting it. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk a little bit more about those in a second, but what are the differences between mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's? And do the symptoms differ? Um, you know, mild cognitive impairment, not really. The symptoms don't really differ. It's just that when you're in that stage of mild cognitive impairment, you're really in the earlier stages. And then when you get to Alzheimer's, you know, usually they're at that point their, um, you know, MRIs or um, certain type of PET scans can actually see like a major shrinkage of your hippocampus or your hippocampal volume, which is, you know, where your memories, your long-term memories, short-term and long-term memories are stored. And then also um, your, you know, they, they might be able to see like, for example, increased plaque, but that doesn't necessarily, you can have plaque and not have Alzheimer's, but have mild cognitive impairment. So, you know, it's just basically the progression, you know, when you're, you're already in that Alzheimer's stage, you're really, you know, at a, it's, it's harder to reverse it, if that makes sense. Like it's harder to, um, uh, go back and and recover your you know your memories and that type of thing but I'll, as we'll discuss today that you know we now have some exciting research that shows that that can be done um along with dr dale bredesen's work you know he's been able to actually reverse early stage alzheimer's so that's very exciting that is very exciting so back to the contributors so gut infections and oral infections are these specific types of infections or are you talking like if you have, um, let's say, uh, gum disease or um, I, like, I guess, describe what you mean by gut infection first, because I'm, is yeah. that like if I get the flu or the stomach flu, you know, or a viral infection or is this something else? Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a couple things with the gut and the brain, um, you know, the gut is actually often called our second brain and there's a direct highway between the gut and the brain. And when we have, um, like example altered, you know, like let's say our gut bacteria is, um, not so favorable, you know, we have, um, too much overgrowth of the unfavorable bacteria and not enough of the good bacteria. This creates a condition called dysbiosis. And when we have dysbiosis, um, you know, are, you know, a lot of things go wrong and this, you know, definitely, um, like, um, over, you know, it creates like yeast overgrowth, uh, fungi overgrowth. And, and unfortunately, um, this overgrowth of yeast or this overgrowth of fungi, these, these types of bacteria can travel up into the brain and, and, and cause, cause serious issues in the brain. And then the same thing, if we have a viral infection, whether it's a gut viral infection or any type of viral infection, a viral infection that has been around for a long time and has never, never been taken care of, this too can cause an issue with the brain. Um, You know, the virus can actually affect our brain health. Um, And then orally, you know, if we've got like, for example, you mentioned like just, you know, uh, you know, some type of oral infection, again, that's like, you know, the, the bacteria, certain bacteria, an overgrowth of a pathogenic bacteria, 
um, that is causing issues with our brain. Cause obviously, you know, our, <laughs> you know, our mouth is very, very close to our brain. So, right. um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So insulin resistance, I, when I think of insulin resistance, I think of diabetes. Is there sort of a lesser, um, stage of that, that, that could lead to this? Yeah. So for example, um, insulin resistance can start way before, I mean, it can start before your blood sugar levels start going up. Um, but normally what happens is that, um, whether, so, so for example, when you have insulin resistance, basically your cells are just not, um, responding to insulin's message to take up circulating glucose or blood sugar, right, in the bloodstream. And so then your blood sugar remains high in your bloodstream. And um, this can have, you know, so what can happen, though, is people can go in and, for example, get their fasting blood glucose, uh, you know, check with their primary care physician, which often they do. They say, hey, come in fasting, you know, so we can uh, look at your, you know, your blood sugar levels in the morning, and you can actually come back um, with normal, you know, pretty normal blood glucose levels. Um, if your um, insulin, you know, even if you have um, a little bit of insulin resistance, because your what your body does naturally says it just keeps producing more and more insulin. It says, oh my gosh, this why, why aren't, you know, Kate's cells listening to us and taking up that blood sugar. And so your body just keeps pumping out more and more insulin. And, um, and then because it's pumping out more and more insulin, your, your cells just eventually become resistant to it. Like I, I, I I'm not hearing this anymore. And so it, that becomes a problem because then your blood sugar just keeps inching up and up. And what they found now is that the same phenomena happens in the brain. So you can get insulin resistance in the brain where again, your brain neurons, you know, your brain cells are just not getting the message to get that sugar, that glucose into your brain cells so they can operate, right? So they can operate efficiently. And, um, and, then, and then your brain doesn't work, right? Because it needs, I mean, your brain is a very, very greedy organ when it comes to sugar. Loves, loves to get that sugar so it can really? do what it needs to do. Mm -hmm. I did not yes. know that. Mm -hmm. And then with the mercury toxicity, I know they used to use mercury in fillings, but they don't anymore. And there's mercury in fish, some fish. Where else can we get uh, too much mercury in our bodies? Um, yeah, that, and that's, that's a good question. Mainly, um, one, uh, as you mentioned, one of the biggest sources is going to be fish, um, especially your large fish, because, you know, they eat other fish. And so you're looking at fish like tuna, swordfish, shark, tilefish, those are all bigger fish that are going to have higher amounts of mercury. And then of course, amalgams, um, most, you know, amalgams, unless you've had your amalgams replaced are going to have some mercury and even tin, you know, in the amalgams and believe yeah. it or not, um, you, uh, mercury, um, is also found in, um, high fructose corn syrup too. So those really? are just, a, you know, yeah, so a few places where you can find mercury. Yet another reason to avoid the high fructose corn syrup. Yes, definitely. <laughs> wow. 
So I remember years ago, there was some speculation that aluminum, which you just mentioned, was a contributor to Alzheimer's disease. Have they figured out if that is true or not true? Well, yeah. So um, there is a little debate about aluminum. And to be honest, I think that, um, you know, I would avoid aluminum because I, I think what happens is that if it gets into the brain, again, your brain is not going to like that. And so it's going to pr produce, you know, this beta amyloid plaque to bind, you know, for example, to the aluminum. So, um, you know, it was really thought for a while that, oh, yes, definitely aluminum, for example, in your deodorant, you know, is a cause of Alzheimer's. Um, I think it's more of a situation, though, where the brain is producing this beta amyloid plaque to protect itself because beta amyloid plaque can actually bind to heavy metals like mercury, for example, um, so that it doesn't, you know, do more damage to the brain, if that makes sense. Because when, you know, mercury is a, uh, and aluminum, any heavy metal gets into your brain, it's not supposed to be there, is going to be damaging to the brain, right? And mm -hmm. so, again, you know, your brain is going to produce this beta amyloid plaque. In, it, it's a defense mechanism. You know, it's definitely a defense mechanism. And it's binding to the metals so that they don't further damage the brain or affect the brain. But then you have this, you know, this beta amyloid plaque. And then if you're not taking care, you know, if you're not reducing the exposure, not getting it out, then it's going to, you know, keep producing this amyloid plaque, which then does interfere with your neuron or your brain cell communication. Mm, fascinating. We have got to take a short break, but when we come back, what you can do to avoid or even reverse brain decline. Do you feel like you're drowning in administrivia? Do you have a podcast you would like transcribed to repurpose as a blog or even a best-selling book? Rhonda's Virtual Office is the answer to the freedom you crave so you can get busy doing what you love. Let Rhonda's Virtual Office give you the relief you need. Visit rondasvirtualoffice.com and get some peace of mind today. Rhonda's Virtual Office is the go-to transcription service for EWN Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us. Back now with your host, Kate Fessler. Welcome back. You are listening to Change, Redefining Success. I'm your host, Kate Fessler, and I'm here with nutrition and health expert, Beth Gillespie, talking about the change nobody wants, brain decline. Beth, isn't, in a, isn't it inevitable that as we age, we experience a decline in brain function? You know that yes, there there are going to be certain things that get slower. Um, for example, your reaction time might not be as fast as it used to be. Um, you know, so there are things like that that might slow down. However, they have found that when it comes to memory, um, you know, that is something that doesn't really that memory doesn't have to um, go away. I mean, we can have a an amazing good memory when we're 80, 85 years old, but then our reaction time, you know, won't be as fast, obviously, as when we were 20 years old or 25 years old. So um, no, no reason. I mean, we can really keep our memory strong if we do the right things. So if I'm experiencing some of the symptoms you mentioned, 
how can I find out what's causing them? Do I have high levels of mercury or am I insulin resistant? Are my hormones out of balance? How do I find out? Well, first of all, um, you know, I think it's important to um, listen to your body and notice, observe, you know, if you've had change in, you know, some, you know, your, you know, whatever it may be, um, you know, you have a change in energy levels or a change in your ability to be able to focus, to really look at those things and then um, be observant. Because if we're not observant, we're not going to notice that we're changing. Um, and then, then one thing I recommend to all of my clients is to go to your primary care physician every year, every two years, and get your fasting blood glucose and your fasting insulin levels tested. I think that's so, so very important because it will show you over time if your fasting blood glucose is inching up and if your fasting insulin is going up as well. So those are two very easy things you can do through your primary care physician. You know, your insurance will cover it if you have just even real basic insurance. Um, so that's one way to, you know, discover if you have um, high, high blood sugar. Um, and then when it comes to hormones, um, you know, I think it also hormones really depends on phase of life, not always, but normally you're going to start seeing hormones imbalanced or hormones lowering or going down, um, especially in women during perimenopause and menopausal years. So that's a really good time to, especially if you notice a decrease in your cognitive function, in your memory, to go and have your hormones tested. And I would specifically look at estrogen, specifically estradiol, um, because research, you know, has shown that there's now, they, they've found estradiol receptors in the parts of the brain that are actually associated with memory. So um, very, very important if you are noticing um, a decline in your brain function to, and especially if you're in the perimenopausal or menopausal or even postmenopausal years to have your hormones tested. Um, specifically, again, estrogen or estradiol, I would look at progesterone. Um, and women might actually even want to look at testosterone because testosterone does help with focus. But one of the primary ones is estrogen, especially during menopausal and postmenopausal years. And then during the perimenopausal years, often your estrogen is normal or it's just fluctuating, but your progesterone is low. So that's really, really common during the perimenopausal years for your progesterone to be low. So if you kind of have a higher estrogen and then a lower progesterone, so the ratio of estrogen to progesterone is high, then that can um, definitely lead to issues with memory and definitely foggy brain. That's a very common symptom in perimenopause, the foggy brain. Hmm. So is it true that women have a higher incidence of Alzheimer's and is that because of the hormone connection? Um, yes, it is true that women have a higher incidence of Alzheimer's and I do believe it is because of the hormone connection. Yeah. So there's, there are, and I know you can't give sort of medical diagnosis type advice, but there's a lot of controversy about hormone replacement therapy and whether or not that's a good thing. And there might be some, you know, unintended consequences and side effects, but it sounds like the hormones are the things that might keep us protected from this cognitive decline. And once they start to deplete, that's when we kind of run into trouble. 
Um, that that's true. And again, that won't be the case for everybody, but yes, that can definitely um, be the case. So yes, and, and it is true, Kate, that not everyone wants to be on hormone replacement therapy, even if it's bioidentical for various reasons, you know, they maybe have a history of breast cancer or they have, you know, folks in their family that have breast cancer and they might choose not to do hormone replacement therapy. So I think that at that point, it's really, really critical to work with a functional medicine doctor or a naturopathic doctor that really understands hormones. And, 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 and so, you know, you really need to weigh, you know, is it okay, I, I've had high risk for Alzheimer's, you know, I do have a, a risk for breast cancer too, and really work with a physician to determine what would be the best path to take. Mm hmm. Under what circumstances could someone reverse mild cognitive decline or even Alzheimer's? Well, the work of Dr. Dale Bredesen has been so, so exciting. Um, he has actually been able to reverse mild cognitive impairment and even early stage Alzheimer's um, and get people, you know, people that were just not functioning anymore. They weren't working. They weren't driving. Get them back to work you know, get them um, back out, um, you know, in life again. Uh, so I think this is, you know, and of course, this is, you know, an initial pilot study, um, more and more. I mean, I know that he's currently putting together a bigger study um, to really show that we can do this. But the pilot study so far, I've been really encouraging, and he's been able to reverse it, which I am so thrilled about. <laughs> And is this with a particular type of drug or it's simply by addressing some of these imbalances and uh, overactiveness <laughs> in the body? Yeah. So, so yes, by, um, by testing and figuring it. So what he does is, you know, and, and what I, you know, what we all do now when we're looking at, um, gosh, you know, how do we prevent myocognitive impairment, early stage Alzheimer's and what do we do if it's already, you know, there, you know, if it's uh, somebody already has been diagnosed with this. Well, we first figure out what the underlying cause is, and we can do that by testing symptoms. You know, does this person, you know, is it, a, is it more of an issue of inflammation and insulin resistance? You know, do we really need to work on, um, you know, changing their diet and their lifestyle and get their blood sugar back down, get their, you know, insulin in a normal healthy range? Or, you know, is it for the specific person really low hormones, like their estrogen and their progesterone and their pregnenolone and their testosterone, they're all really, really low. And so do we need to work on getting, you know, whether it's through bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, or maybe it's certain foods or even um, herbs that we can give to this person to help balance out their hormones? Or maybe in that particular person, it's, it's a matter of toxicity. You know, maybe they eat, you know, tuna or, you know, big fish like every day and they've actually, you know, accumulated a mercury toxic load and we have to figure out how to get the mercury out of the body through, you know, proper detoxification. So those are just some of the things. And once you address those underlying factors, then, you know, you're, you're, it might take, you know, it's not going to happen right away, but you address those underlying factors and then voila, you know, if you're getting to the root of the problem, then you're able to actually reverse what the person was experiencing. Um, I actually 
was, um, I, you know, I've been working with a woman who was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. And um, we worked together over a period of about six months to a year. And she saw a complete reversal of symptoms. Uh, so it was so, so exciting to witness that. Mm, that is great news. Is there, is there a correlation between the particular type of symptom and the underlying cause? Or is it, um, or, or is it just the symptoms could be for any underlying cause and you just have to do the testing? Like if I'm forgetting my keys, is it more likely that I have high mercury levels, for example, or is it just these are the symptoms and then um, any of the underlying causes could be resulting in those? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I totally understand your question. And um, that's that's an interesting question that you pose, because what they have found, um, especially in Dr. Dale Bredesen's work with um, a lot of functional medicine doctors all over the country now, is that when there is, um, like, for example, some type of toxicity, whether it's heavy metals, chemicals, um, you know, other types of environmental toxins that somebody is being exposed to. Um, usually what happens is brain, you know, decline starts a little bit earlier. It could happen in the 40s, 50s, 60s. That's very, very common. And instead of the person losing their memory, they actually, it's, it's more they lose the ability to kind of, you know, coordinate speech or focus or calculate um, or organize. Those are some of the skills they tend to uh, lose way before they lose memory. Hmm. Hmm. So let's say I'm not experiencing any symptoms, but I really don't want to. What are some precautions I could take now to avoid this brain decline? So I think the first thing is, um, looking at diet and making sure that you're getting a lot of brain supportive foods and by, you know, and, and avoiding the brain toxic foods. So for example, you know, avoiding the sugar and the white processed flours and, um, high fructose corn syrup, like we talked about last time and really just eating whole good foods and making sure that you're getting a lot of those omega-3 essential fatty acids in your diet, a lot of antioxidants in the form of blueberries and, um, you know, super rich dark chocolate or green tea, those type of things, um, you know, just, uh, what I'd like to call a brain boosting diet. And then when it comes to lifestyle, exercise is so, so important. Um, and, you know, I'm sure people get tired of hearing this over and over again, but exercise is one of the few things that can actually increase brain-derived nootropic factor. So very, very important to move the body, to exercise, and, and do the type of exercise that you enjoy. You know, if you don't enjoy going to the gym, then do something else. But very, very important to move the body. And then Kate's sleep is so, so critical to good brain health. It's so important because when we sleep, we, our brain, which, you know, they didn't even know this. Um, I mean, this is very, very new research relatively, um, is that our brain actually also has a drainage system, just like our body's own lymphatic system. Our brain has a drainage system. And when we sleep, the brain shrinks just a little bit so that our body can drain, you know, the brain can drain out the toxins. 
and um, it's called our glymphatic system. And so this is so important. Imagine if we're shorting ourselves on sleep, which most Americans do. Mm -hmm. um, not only are we waking up and having to drink tons of coffee the next day and craving sugar and, you know, carbs and, you know, doing, you know, all of these things that are not, you know, good for us in the first place, but we're also depriving our brain of that, that, that time it needs to drain toxins. So um, very, very important to, you know, get that seven to nine hours of sleep every night. And I know that's hard for some people, but I, that's, I guess, another whole nother issue. Right. And then also really managing stress. That's, um, you know, whatever it takes to manage your stress levels. And I'm not saying that we can get rid of all of our stressors. I'm not, you know, into, you know, implying that at all. I know that we can't, but, how we perceive our stress and how we manage our stress is critically, critically important to good brain health. Um, you know, we just, in fact, they've shown, I mean, just being able to do something every day, whether it's five or 10 minutes of, you know, just meditating, or maybe for you, that's just going for a meditative walk, whatever it may be, that really, really helps the brain a lot. And a lot of good research on that um, as far, especially meditation, um, helping the brain, but whatever helps you manage your stress is something that needs to really be looked at. And then also staying in communication um, with people, it, it, you know, it's so, so important. Really having a strong social network um, is critically important to good brain health because they have found that isolation you know, not only does it lead to depression, but it leads to cognitive decline and depression and cognitive decline uh, often go hand in hand. So really going out there and making sure, you know, um, um, you know, just being social, um, connecting with people, um, meeting them in person, scheduling lunches with your friends, getting together with your family, very important. So a couple of things that I wanted to clarify, and that was going to be the first one. I was thinking social network. So does online have the same benefits as actually being face-to-face -face with someone? Well, there's, boy, um, a lot of people are writing about that right now. Um, in fact, I think I just ordered a book, How to Break Up with Your Phone. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> anyway, um, but yeah, so um, interestingly enough, this this is a huge, huge field of research right now. And I think what's happening is that um, it's not, they're finding that it's not the same type of connection. So yes, we can use social media and our social media platforms to stay connected, but it doesn't replace getting to, actually getting together with somebody that in-person, you know, communication. Um, so very, very important to do that as well. Um, but, you know, social media platforms do help us stay connected to a certain extent, but now they're finding that they're also very, very distracting and, 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 and can even lead to isolation and depression because people are looking at what everybody else is doing or they're feeling like they're missing out all the time. You know, there's so many things that go along with that. It doesn't take the place of in-person communication. Right. So maybe a little bit of both in yeah. moderation. Yeah. And, you know, and, and going back to brain health too, what they're also finding is that, you know, constantly checking your phone and constantly being on 
you know, Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever you're doing and never, never letting your brain just space out or be present to what's around you. That's not good for your brain. And I think that we're seeing that. I mean, it seems like everybody has ADD or ADHD, mm -hmm. you know, these days. I mean, everybody has it. No one can focus anymore um, because we're so distracted all the time. Um, so I think it is very important to monitor how, how long, you know, like how much time are you actually looking at your phone? Give your, give your brain a break, let it space out, go for a walk, don't have your phone with you. Don't be on the phone, you know, get yeah. Your, get, yeah. You know, I, I do walk and I do not, I bring my phone just in case, but I don't listen to music and I don't talk on the phone. I just kind of, I like to be in the silence or in the sound of the place that I'm walking. And I see so many people who have their earbuds in and you can hear that they're listening to music or, or they're talking on the phone and sometimes they even have their kids or their dog with them. And I'm thinking, wow, like <laughs> that's, that seems like not good to be always distracted. Yeah. That. Well, and you know, there's a couple of different ways to look at that. So yeah, maybe, um, you know, you go for one walk, which is just your, I'm in the present, you know, you notice the sounds, you notice your surroundings, you, you know, you know, that's, or if you have a dog, you just, hang out with your dog, you know, <laughs> you know, you're just not, not, you don't have your headphones and you're just with your dog or you're with your spouse or you're, you're with your kids. And then, you know, for, to keep the body moving, maybe you have to take a work phone call. And instead of sitting down and taking your work phone call, you walk instead. And, uh, you know, if you can, if you don't have to take notes, um, and then that way you're, you're, you actually are moving your body and getting in, that's an easy way to get an exercise if you have to do the call anyway. Good so. point. Or like have mm -hmm. a work a treadmill desk. <laughs> yes. Or a treadmill desk would work too, especially if you live somewhere where it's, you know, snowy and rainy all the time. <laughs> right. Sorry. Right. I live somewhere where it's not like that. So I forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's actually, so the electronic devices is actually a good segue into, um, the sleep question. So you're also supposed to kind of stay away from your devices at night because they, they have been shown to interrupt your sleep. What yes. are some other ways that people can get this great sleep that's so necessary for our brain to recharge? Um, yes. Yeah, so, so definitely powering down the devices before you go to bed, um, at least half an hour to an hour before you go to bed. And I know that's hard, but it's really, really important. Um, because if you don't, then you're, you know, your those cortisol levels are going to just keep going up, you know, because your, you know, your, your screens and all this, they stimulate your cortisol levels and then your cortisol levels, which are supposed to be going down in the evening, down at night, start going up. And then of course, that's going to prevent you from being able to fall asleep right away. Um, so that's, that's definitely problematic, you know, really just turning those devices off and maybe just having like a, just a really fun novel, you know, something that you would typically not read something that's just like a mystery novel or something that's going to kind of take you far away and just read in bed, you know, or read before you go to bed for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then just go to sleep. Um, and that way you're not stimulating your cortisol, you know, with, with the screen, you know, with the light from the screen right before you go to bed. 
Um, and then, you know, if you need to, you know, if you have a very stressful job, you know, just even in the evening drinking some soothing tea, like chamomile tea, just creating some type of ritual, whether it's 20 minutes, half an hour, where it's like, okay, this is my bedtime ritual. Like maybe you make some tea and you read, you know, for 20 minutes before you go to bed, or maybe you, um, light a candle and you read in bed for 20 minutes, or maybe you don't even read. Maybe you just kind of zone out, or maybe you do a little journaling, you know, for five, 10 minutes, write in your little gratitude journal, whatever it is. I think establishing that bedtime ritual is so important to kind of bringing you down so that your body can rest and you can actually fall asleep. Um, and then if you're still, if you're waking up in the middle of the night, that could be a lot of other things that could be um, that could be blood sugar, you know, um, that could be hormones. So that's like a whole different topic. But usually, you know, working with a nutritionist or a practitioner, you can figure that out. And the last question about some of the things that you said, omega-3s. Not all fish is bad, right? Just some of the bigger ones with the higher mercury content. We should be eating fish. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, so yes, and you know, it, it, this has become a more complicated question as our oceans have become more toxic, unfortunately. Mm. And um, you know, right right now, I mean, definitely you want to avoid the bigger fish because, as I said earlier, you know, you you know, they, they eat other fish and then they just accumulate more toxins, like mercury, for example. Um, however, the smaller fish tend to use, like you know, your sardines and your anchovies your, um, your certain salmon, like from Alaska, um, tend to have much lower levels of mercury, test lower. And so I would focus on the smaller fish. And then you can certainly also take omega-3 essential fatty acid supplementation with EPA and DHA. So that's another way to get in your omega-3s. Um, you can also get an omega-3 essential fatty acids through certain types of seeds, um, like chia seeds and flax seeds, for example. The difference is, is that those omega-3 essential fatty acids are not going to be as easily converted to EPA and DHA, which are very, very critical to lowering inflammation. And DHA is very, very important um, to the brain. So, um, you know, eating the omega-3s in the form of fish is going to get you that EPA and DHA. It doesn't have to be converted. It's already there. Whereas if you eat other foods like flaxseed, chia seeds that are rich in the omega-3 essential fatty acids, basically your plant foods, a conversion has to take place and you might just not have the enzymes to make a good conversion of the omega-3s to the EPA and DHA. Hmm. Okay. Well, we're almost out of time. So I have to ask you, what is one book or resource that changed your life that you would recommend to people? You know, I think if, uh, gosh, there's so many, but, um, you know, just because we're on the topic of brain health today, um, I would suggest that anybody that is experiencing, you know, they're just a little worried about their brain health, maybe because they're not personally experiencing symptoms yet, but their mother or their grandmother, or they have, you know, several people in their family that have been diagnosed with dementia or Alzheimer's disease, um, or they're starting to notice, you know, I just feel like my brain's not working quite like it used to. I know I'm slowing down a little bit. I'm forgetting things a lot. 
Um, or if you actually started, you know, like, okay, I know something's wrong. I, I, I got to take care of this. I need to get on this. I would recommend Dr. Dale Bredesen's book, The End of Alzheimer's. It's written for both practitioners and the public. And he really lays out things very, very nicely. Um, it's a very easy read and you can skip the one whole chapter that's very science, you know, very sciencey. You can skip that if you don't want to read it. And, um, and then just go more to his plan. I think it's a great book um, and it really helps people understand okay, these are the things I need to focus on. And then if they feel like they need more help at that point, then they can go and, and work with a practitioner that has, you know, um, studied with Dr. Dale Bredesen. If people want to find out more about you and your work, maybe get tested for some of these contributing factors, how can they do that? Um, so they can go to my website, nutritionwithbeth.com. So that's easy. And just go to programs and they'll see my Revitalize Your Brain program, um, which gives a full description of the program. It's a three-month program. And we really look at everything, the underlying factors. It's a very inclusive program. I include um, testing um, and even brain exercises um, in the form of a software program. So it's a very inclusive program and I'm super excited about it, you know, and um, I just, it's, it's just my passion to help people get their brain back to where, you know, where it was and um, have a super happy, productive life and always have their memories as long as they live. Beth, this is re a really important topic and this is fantastic information. Thank you so much for sharing today. And thank you for having me, Kate. I enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us. This is the EWN Podcast Network. Alzheimer's is one of the scariest things facing us today. Fortunately, my family hasn't been touched by it, but I know people who have been and it is just tragic to see the devastating effect it has on families. If something could be done to prevent or even reverse the earlier symptoms, I think we'd all want to know about it and start incorporating those steps into our lives. I just started reading Dr. Bredesen's book, but it seems as if all of the research to date has maybe been focusing on the wrong thing. This is a great step, hopefully in the right direction, and I hope it turns into a movement if it truly performs as advertised. If you have something to add to the conversation, please leave a comment on my Facebook page, First Class Life Solutions, if you have a great story to tell or have some transformational information to share like Beth just did, and you'd like to be a guest on my podcast, please click on the link at the bottom of the show page and fill out the survey. If it seems like a good fit, I'll be in touch. Remember, you can find links to previous podcasts as well as the recommendations of my guests on my website, firstclasslifesolutions.com. One of the contributors to cognitive decline and lack of good sleep hygiene, which by the way seems to be coming up a lot lately, is stress. Next week, my guest will be Jennifer Ross, who will share with us how to reduce stress through biofeedback. For the past 16 years, Jennifer has been in the healthcare field of nursing. She had been feeling a desire for change, not only in her own health, but in her career as well. So she made the decision to leave nursing to pursue biofeedback. Jennifer wanted to work on the root cause, not just symptom management any longer. She was introduced to biofeedback and was drawn in by the many ways to reduce stress and balance the body. As a certified biofeedback technician, Jennifer supports her clients holistically in regaining their health. Jennifer also believes that our emotions play a bigger role in our overall health than previously thought. 
but thoughts and beliefs we hold from past experiences shape who we are and can impact our overall health in so many ways. By learning to change our thoughts and negative beliefs to healthier patterns, we can improve our lives. Biofeedback can not only support your body-mind-spirit during times of illness or stress, but the effects have a ripple effect that help your body to heal in more ways than just physically. I hope you'll join us. Until then, cheers to your authentic first-class life. I'm Kate Fessler. Thanks for listening to Change, Redefining Success. is the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN Podcast hosts at ewnpodcastnetwork.com.